0: Thank you for listening to Fashion Africana Podcast. Please be respectful of the intellectual property featured in this episode. Hello everyone, I'm Beatrice Amit ola and you're listening to Fashion Africana Podcast and today I'm speaking with April. April, could you please introduce yourself briefly to us.
1: Yes, my name is April Walker and I am the founder of Walkerwear and one of the architects and uh, first trailblazers in streetwear with my brand. I have seen a lot of changes and transformations within the fashion industry and you know, watched it grow from being no industry to being a multi-billion dollar industry. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm the oldest of three sisters. I have two brothers and I am all things hip hop, all things Brooklyn and love traveling. And I'm a foodie. That's, that's me in a nutshell.
0: Wow. For you people out there, I am so honored to have April Walker on the Fashion Africana podcast. What she said is just, it's true, but there is so much more. I mean, she's a game changer. She's an author, educator, filmmaker, wellness advocate. She is the first woman who stepped into streetwear. Back in the day, she had the balls to say, let me get in and create a brand, a brand that is a remarkable, a, a streetwear brand, walker wear. She worked with Tupac, Biggie, Aaliyah, Method Man, named them all. She's, yeah, for me, really a fashion icon and a person to look up to because um, as a woman and as a black woman, to create what she created back in the days, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I see your smile. You know, because it's like, I'm I'm a hip hop girl, you know, and I grew up in the 90s and I I know my brother when he, you know, was playing Naughty by Nature, Run DMC, Warren G, you know, I grew up with it, my younger brother, and it's like, Wow, you know, this is our era. And though I'm based here in Germany, but we had all this feeling and vibe, and we were totally in it. And and that's why it's so great to have you here. You know, a, a person, a lady who shaped, you know, the the styles. How did you get started, and when? Can you give us an insight?
1: Sure. I started. I was still in college when I started. I started. I was at New Pulse in the 80s and I loved the music. And, you know, my father was in the music industry already. He was managing at that time jazz and Jay-Z and D-Train and working with a lot of music artists. So I grew up as a jazz baby and in watching that industry itself. So by the time hip-hop started exploding, I just was all things hip-hop because it was like, communicating the voice of the unheard for for me you know and it was speaking my language and it was like our CNN in the hoods you know and and so you know it also was self-expression at its best at that moment in the 80s here in New York City because New York was a really interesting place at that time. It was an intersection of so much happening from street to punk to surf to to rock and roll to um to the gritty, grimy New York that people still remember who are like from here native New Yorkers or if you watched enough old movies, you could see that in New York. So it was really dope because it was like you could have, you could go to a club and see a hustler hanging out with the correction officer or a hustler with an athlete, or, you know, it was a melting pot, a mishmash of everything. And no one cared so much about labels. There was a lot of money going around in, in, in New York because you know, this is the 80s. That's when the crack era hit. So at the beginning of it, it was just really a weird time because um, I'll be honest, when I first opened my first shop, I was a junior in college and I knew I didn't want to work for someone else. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I watched my father all my life do his Mm -hmm. own thing. So he was probably my first inspiration. And then... I went into Dapper Dance one night after the Apollo. I went to mm-hmm. the Apollo uh, hanging out and I saw that. And that's what sparked it for me. Like I can create my own shop and represent Brooklyn because Brooklyn and Harlem were very different in their vibe and in the way they dressed and everything. And I just, I was like, this is what I'm going to do, but for us. And, and so it was just really a form of self-expression. I didn't think it that far. I just, you know, started moving from the gut and instincts and your tribe will find you. So like anyone who is <laughs> in love with right then it was my sisters you know they were in school and we were all living together and so they came and they picked up stuff we made a homemade cutting table and we just I say success leaves clues so if you follow that trail which we did right we had the blueprint we just started there we borrowed a few of his tailors and we started our thing you know and that's how we started and then we just started figuring it out but yeah, we wow. just believed in it. Believed in it with everything. That's how it initially started, and then it started out of my house. And then six months or maybe a year later, I started with my first shop, which was about five blocks from my house in Brooklyn, Clinton Hill Bed Stuy, and it was called Fashion in Effect. And we started with a homemade sign.
0: Wow. And
1: few people that loved hip hop, and that yeah, that was where my humble humble beginnings.
0: A wow, incredible, but just to give us an insight. I mean, how was the fashion industry like in the eighties? I mean, how many Afro-American designers were on the spotlight? How, how can we imagine the whole, yeah. Fashion scene.
1: So it was the opposite of now, and we still have a lot of work to do now, but in the eighties, like my inspiration really came from Willie Smith which is Willie wear. If you, if some of you could do your research, if you don't know of him, but he was iconic to me, you know, there was Patrick Robinson and, and, and some other designers that came up as well before that. But, um, I think that for me, I wore Willie wear. And so he was a big influence. I like the way he used patterns and mixed fabrics and things that wouldn't normally, um, Go together, so to speak, because everything was very much about uniform at that time. You know, in terms of, um you know, monochromatic and and just looks that were very matchy matchy, so to speak. <laughs> and he that and he just disrupted that. So I love that about him. Um, but by that time, I think he he passed. I believe he did pass away. But his clothing was still around, you know. He still had deals, and his sister Tookie Smith, who who actually was dating Robert De Niro, I think at that time, she was she had the brand, so that was there. But Dapper Dan was on the rise. He had his store in Harlem. There was someone else in Harlem named Bell and Shabazz, and um, his and Barry. They were like another other Harlem nights that were really dope, that were doing custom work, kind of like Dapper Dan, mm-hmm. but their own. Here in Brooklyn, there was someone named Carl Williams, a.k.a. Carl Canine, mm-hmm. and he was in Flatbush while I opened on this side in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Um, he was in Flatbush. He had a tailor shop on that side. And then there was Miguel Navarro, who was uh, up-and-coming designer in all things hip-hop. He was a dancer, too, and a club promoter. He was a hustler, but he was really good, and he made clothes for a lot of hustlers and athletes at that time. So there was us. That's what I knew of. There probably were others, but that, that in a nutshell, was what I remember as being there in the very beginning. I'm finding out P&B Nation now that they were one of the first with graffiti, they came right after they were in Brooklyn out of Coney Island, but there was no, there was no blueprint. There was no line. I had no mentor, mm-hmm. you know, to give you, you, know, it was literally, no one had a line. We were all making one of a kind pieces at that time and figuring it out. Um, and we didn't, we didn't have a blueprint. It was really kind of feeling your way.
0: Yeah, and trusting
1: your instincts and I went to school for business and communication so that helped me Mm -hmm. and I knew how to hustle I started um I started you know with my own things I remember my father taking me out at the bicentennial I was 10 years old and I remember he would always do these little things this was when I think back to my life this was probably the first really big thing that happened Mm -hmm. that because I was 10 and he said, the Bicentennial is coming up and we're going to go sell some shirts. And I was like, oh boy, another one of his cockamamie ideas, you know, but, but (laughs) we drew a sailboat, we had to draw this sailboat and we went and had a screen made. We went and bought ink. We had a squeegee. And we actually stayed up all night and printed all of these shirts manually. And then the next day, when the bicentennial hit, we went to Manhattan and we went and sold all of those shirts.
0: Wow. And
1: when we came back, he showed me a big wad and he said, You see this? You did that. You know? And it was like, Wow. So I, I, I saw the process from drawing to making a screen print, to going and buying the t-shirts, to actually being tired doing the work all night. But then I saw the the reward. So, you know, I, it stuck with me. That was my first experience as an entrepreneur, so to speak, a solopreneur, (laughs) entrepreneur.
0: wow this is so inspiring to hear you know because today i mean for so many they even can't imagine how did it work without social media without the internet None of that. i'm telling you it's like you know but that's why it's so good to go back you know to understand where we're coming from how did it evolve in the back and um I mean, yeah, in the 90s, I mean, hip-hop was just all over the place. And um, also yeah. for us here in Germany, we were just, yeah, vibing, listening to Snoop Dogg, Tupac, name them. And um, I would like to know, what was, or what would you say was the significant hip-hop style, fashion style? Hip-hop. Yeah.
1: Mm. So I think in the 80s, it, it started... And the people started finding themselves. And it was like, when you think about Grandmaster Flash and all of these guys, they actually had like costumes, right? When you look at the early, early NWA, Dr. Dre pictures, it's like they're almost in drag. And then I think that um, it became more about owning um, who you are and your style of what you're saying and how you feel. So NWA, I remember the first time I saw them, on a video and i was like wow like when he came jumping through the jail when he was in jail and he came jumping through easy (laughs) that was like wow like the whole chucks and the dickies and the you know coach jackets and that whole vibe i got it right away with the jerry curls and then you had um you know um the being proud of being black, right. You you was proud to be who you were. So you had everybody from, um, KRS one to poor righteous teachers to, you know, a whole tribe called quest to a whole Mm. group of people that were owning their own power. Right. And saying, this is who we are. You and I T Y, you know, you you had, um, you know, Moni in the middle, you know, repping her set. So it was very diverse, but it was all very authentic. And I think it's so special that magic, because everyone was spitting from their heart. Yeah. And so you were creating from your heart and you wanted to represent that person and what they had to say. So like when Naughty by Nature came out with oh. hip hop.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah.
1: know what i mean Mm -hmm. and you know down with the king and all of these things by the 90s when we stepped into the 90s you had epmd and all of these guys onyx and you know it was already at that point becoming very commercial because you have to remember MTV gave the landscape for hip hop universally around the world, and that changed the games, Yo and TV raps, right? Because then people started signing up for uniforms. In my opinion, people being distinguished and more from where they were, and more about what that one had on. I wanted to wear that, and um, I think that made it a little less exciting in one way, but it market for mass production for people wanting to to have more of the same
0: if that makes sense yeah i hear you because this would have been also my next question because what really led to the next level since mtv was there you know you could see all these music videos and of course yeah you see what's happening in the east west south who's wearing what and um therefore yeah how would you then describe it that Later on, it was more the fashion styles were more shaped by by the music or there was still an inspiration coming out of itself? It was total
1: inspiration. I think it was a bit of both. I think it was always inspired by the music for us, even though it was, you know, um, when I say self-expression, the music was leading us, right? Because I fell in love with hip-hop. And that was Public Enemy. I, if you came in my first shop, I had a, a dog on the wall a wall that said, don't believe the hype, right? He was wearing something that said, don't believe the hype and a clock with um, gold teeth that said FIE, fashion in effect, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I I, remember it was always hip hop for us and it was always the music that, that paved the way in terms of the vibe. You know, mm-hmm. um, that music and fashion are our biggest forms of self-expression. So they're symbiotic, you know, so that part never changed. I think that what happened was just like anything else, when corporate America sees anything that's a real form of self-expression and they see they can monetize that and it's going to be big it always happens and everything Mm -hmm. else gets diluted and so um the art form became bigger and it became a really big industry over time and you know no complaints because a lot of people did really well and it really um propelled an industry where people of color had jobs um and really were able to get their products out and their designs in a big way. I think the challenge was, which is still a challenge and it's a challenge in every industry. People of color are very creative, but we don't have cultural currency when it comes to ownership mm-hmm. and distribution. So whereas we don't have that, we will find ourselves continuing to chase our tails and being controlled. And so that, that's my only issue with, um, you know, urban streetwear, fashion, if you look at it being a $165 billion industry at its height, we can't say that we were big on those numbers. You know, we all participated, but um, just like every other industry, those who control are those
0: who who really participate. Mm -hmm. I hear you. So basically the whole hip hop movement was going on and um, money was out there, but the people of color were not really making money out of it.
1: No, they, they I so that's all relative, right? Cause mm-hmm. a lot of people get a lot of money, but if you look at a, um, company that sold for $140 million, um, you know, let's say a company that made $140, the, the founders didn't make what should have been made that in my opinion, and that's my opinion. Mm being in business right
0: yeah but to
1: that person, so the company they might think that was a great deal so you understand it's a fine line yeah but the point is if we owned both ends of it distribution and that side everybody would eat yeah in a bigger in a bigger way that's what i'm trying to say so i'm saying like we need to control distribution at all ends from music to fashion to sneakers to cars to uh, platform social mediums we need our own build our own tables so we can eat at those own tables and let the dollar circulate in our own communities globally that's what I'm saying
0: wow amen huh? <laughs> so good the international fashion industry I mean back in the days they were you know highlighting luxury brands etc how 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 was it about um collaborations um was there also possibilities for for your line or dapper dan you know i mean what was going on how how did they really um relate to this wave to the whole hip-hop fashion wave well
1: it, it it became mainstream so when it became mainstream a lot of people wanted in if you're talking about luxury brands no luxury brands still weren't receiving us but I don't think we cared, you know, like I never came in the industry knocking on those doors and wanting to be a part of that because to me that wasn't really who we were, you know what I mean? Like no one else had to validate our dopeness, Mm
0: -hmm. Like We
1: were from the heart and doing something they couldn't do. So that's why we were special, right? Um, So I don't need you to tell me or validate it'll be that bridge. Now, if they came and wanted to do something special, that's different, right? if there's two creatives that respect each other and want to do that, but it was never a goal for me to go and seek that and hit that mark. Right. Um, Because I'm into creating my own legacy brand. Right. Um, so that was important to me, but, but no, I didn't expect anything to change just because, um, you know, they were still if you remember in the 90s we had to we we boycotted the grammys because they weren't even acknowledging music artists at that time in hip hop you know and it was a multi billion dollar industry by that point so you know i think black people have always had struggles with um gaining respect mm-hmm. even though contributing to the culture in such significant and huge and important ways. So, you know, no, like opportunities weren't there in terms of, and if we look at luxury brands now, there are a lot of luxury brands of color that um, we don't know about because they're not received in mainstream um, fashion Way they should be. We still have a lot of work to do. Things are changing, but they're just not changing fast enough for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely, it's true. It's about recognition, and um, I would also say cultural appropriation plays a role because yeah. you know people feel the the vibe and they want to relate to it, and they see there's you know a certain fanciness around, but to really adapt to the culture there's not really the interest. And um this is where, where I also see the similarities somehow with the African fashion movement. Um, you know, since um I'm on it since years and right. you know, when I when I picked up on it I was like, wow, this is so interesting because it's it's the birth is out of the talents and there was a need for also expressing our styles, our identities, and um, going back to to use your heritage and you know mix it up in the whole styles. And um, if you come, I mean, you you know the the move, what is happening? If you look into this African fashion movement today, and if you compare with synergies, there, you know, is it? Uh? And and this is also what I see. It's like Wow, um, that's why I wrote also on an essay that there's a relation to the hip-hop fashion movement and the movement we're in today. Because, um, yeah, you, you at the beginning, people were not, first of all, getting it that we're talking of contemporary African fashion. So this was the first, um, what we had to get right. And, um, I mean, over here in Germany, people were still thinking of ethno fashion and um, because this whole... Um, eight manner, you know, white savior behavior is still strong over here. And um, back in the days, we also didn't have really media who could talk about it and and communicate um, what African fashion is. Therefore, I said, wow, I need to do it, I think, (laughs) or at least to create a platform where it can be addressed and and also with um, hip hop, those days with the fashion styles, were there uh, media brands really talking about it or was it also more like a niche and there was still a small circle communicating the brands because you need to have also representatives in media who can understand or who experience this hip hop vibe so they can write about it. Otherwise if they cannot relate to the music, you can't write about it. How would you describe right. it? Yeah. That's
1: a great question. But first, let me just salute you for you know taking the reins and deciding to uh, do a show like this to communicate to the world and to express to the world um, fashion as it stands in Africa and and, and and celebrate it and bring up the issues because that's how we gain change you know, each one, teach one and, um, inspiring others and sharing stories and, and just, yeah, vibrations, high vibrations that resonate with others. So, you know, salute.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate. Wow. So
1: for me, the question you asked, um, I have to shout out Elena Romero, which is a sister That I've known, she came in the industry after me in the 90s, but she was at DNR, Daily News Record, which was a division um, under the helm of, um, with WWD. And, you know, it was very recognized at that time, but they wouldn't recognize hip hop once again, right? And clothing. So we couldn't get any mainstream media or stories. And she fought hard for us. And she was the first writer to start pinning articles on myself and Fubu and Mecca and Aniche and Sean John and these guys. And as she continued to write, being that that was such a big fashion publication, then we started getting pieces with like New York Post and New York Times. I also, there was another woman. Her name was Constance White. All right. Constance White is really big in fact. Right. And she's another um, she's a uh, black woman who wrote our stories. I remember her being one of the first as well. She wrote about us in WWD and then also in New York Times. But it wasn't a lot. You know, like it was those two that I can remember off the top of my head and Julia Chance, who I would say, and Sonia Majep for the source. They gave me this huge spread. And this is the early nineties in the source magazine. That was like the Bible of hip hop at that time. And for them to do that, it gave people around the world the chance to see my fashion and really, um, visually take it in in another way and know about it, you know, increase the brand awareness. So, you know, it was people that believed in us, believed in the industry and believed in what we were doing. But that once again goes to it being your tribe, an extension of your tribe. So people understand and they are like, you know, a chain is only as strong as a link, right? Mm -hmm. So powerful together. So it was that.
0: Wow. You see, incredible. So what was your, or what have been your um, greatest industry experiences?
1: Failure, you know? Okay. Failure always teaches us more than success because we remember it more. And for me, it's, it's our um, the way we grow fast while we grow forward. You know, um, every failure, which we all will encounter if we live long enough, there's no way you're going to get around failure. It affords us an opportunity to learn what we can do differently, to learn about timing. Oh, to learn yes. about congruency, to learn about not being, um, not leveling up enough. You Sometimes we have really big goals, but we're not prepared for it. Yes. And we learn that through lessons of life, you know. So it's just, if you know what you want, I would say to anyone, um, it's great to have aspirations, but be prepared to back them up with all the research, with all of the work, um, and all of the team, you know, in the right places so that you can sustain whatever you're going after. Um, and don't be afraid to do things in steps, meaning it's like a ladder and you're climbing a ladder, right? Don't try to get to the top before one, two, three. You know, it's a process and the process is there for a reason. So I really don't look at failure as failure. I say it because everyone knows it that way. But I say failure is a great chance for growth learning, like learning experiences, because nothing's really a failure unless we don't grow from it. Right? Yes. For me, it was financing. So for everyone I would say study your money as early as possible Um, because I think when we're young and when we start winning very early, whatever you're doing in life, a lot of us think, oh, this is going to last forever. Or they think, oh, I don't have to worry about that because I'm going to be this multimillionaire by the time I'm 25 or whatever you're thinking. But life has a way to humble us and knock us down. So getting up is important, but also knowing... um, how to be, not just sustain your your dream, but to not just maintain it, not how to just survive, but how do I thrive? How do I plant? How do I cultivate? How do I nurture? How do I grow? And how do I empower others so that I'm not the only one on the team growing, but everyone levels up simultaneously because that's the way we strengthen our communities and we help create a more sustainable ecosystem so you know I would say that's one part of it and being a woman was a big part of it in terms of challenging I was in an all-men's industry I was in the fashion industry with people that didn't look like myself you know on the other end of the table most of the time when I had to do deals or was looking to do distribution deals I stayed independent most of the time I encountered some almost deals, um, but most of the time walked away from those deals because they weren't right for me. Um, so, you know, those are all experiences that I say, you know, I don't necessarily call them failures because I had to do it differently.
0: I probably might have done tweaks here
1: or there, but I would have still walked away.
0: Wow. Thank you for this insight yeah, you know, this is how we learn, this is how we grow, but it's so right. And um, I can really also agree to that. Failure shouldn't be seen as something bad or, you know, something you can't get away with. Because this is a mentality thing. And also over here in Europe and in Germany, especially if you if you have a failure, you know, people look like you, like, oh my God, okay, she can't do the thing. But it's it's a way of you stand up, you know, because it can happen.
1: Like Oprah Winfrey, like, um, you know, like, like Hershey, like anybody that was great, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, they fell way more than they won. That's the way you win. Yeah. You must forward, you know, that's the way you grow. That's the way you get your nuggets. That's the way you share and empower others through experience, you know. And you can't get a better lesson than life. Absolutely. So, you know,
0: that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, this is so right. And this is also what I see what the next generation needs to understand, especially over here, because, um, it's so sticked into your head, not to fail that it holds that's a lot back. Everyone posts their highlights instead of their,
1: with their tough days. And that's part of the problem,
0: you know? Exactly. So, and um, yeah, so these kids, I mean, this digital world, it's, it's a world for itself, you know. And, um, but how, how would you say has the digital age and social media expanded the horizons for walk-aware?
1: Oh, it's expanded it globally, especially sharing stories and globally being able to be at all places at once. That's exciting to me, you know. Um, As I say, energy feeds energy. So what you put out there on social media is what you get back. So you'll find your tribe on social media if you're consistent and authentic in who you are. But it can really grow fast if you learn how to use it, um, the tools of social media for your brand, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that all of it is about monetizing now, all of pretty much all the big boys on social media, from Instagram to Facebook, to you know, they figure out they figured out how to hold back your impressions unless you're paying them, right? So it's 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 figuring out how to utilize and how to monetize that as a business, but at the same time, how to stay authentic, how to stay in alignment with your values and what you believe in, and, that, and then you have a huge opportunity to story tell. Um, and so I think that whether you're shaping a story and creating a brand or you have all of these amazing stories to share, it's a great vehicle for you to sell, to share, and to expand in terms of amplifying your messaging. So it's it's exciting to me. You know, I would have never come back uh, with my brand in terms of if there wasn't this digital era. I'm not really excited about trying to go into stores. I want to just find in my own e-commerce shop and sell to the world. You know, I will do collaborations and have here and there with stores in and out, but I don't want to play that game right now. You know, this is more exciting to me and controlling my own distribution.
0: Yeah, this is it. We need to get there. This is really something what is now also so important for designers of African heritage.
1: Yes. Now that's exciting. Collaborating with someone in Africa that's dope, you know, like, like that's exciting. Like telling storytelling and showing like, just like Avengers unite, like this yes. is how, we do that. you know, so it's exciting in that way.
0: Absolutely. These are opportunities. Here we are. We are here to connect April. We're ready. <laughs> Okay. You know, we let's make it happen. Yep. <laughs> you know, also this year it has been anyway so crazy with this whole pandemic and then the Black Lives Matter movement. Hmm. The Black Lives Matter movement. It has been a lot. It has been a lot, you know. And um what I want to say is that this movement also really um touched yeah. Germany. And, um, today we're talking about institutional structural racism. And before we didn't have this discussion or this kind of debates in Germany. And, um, now industry players realize, oh, um, somehow we're not really having black owned brands, how they are now called. And, um, when I did some research on you, I saw that you wrote also an essay on racism in the fashion industry and how the white industry leaders must take real action and not just talk about it. And, you know, they really have to come up with action plans. Please give us an insight of your yeah opinion and what would you advise those leaders
1: well, when I wrote the essay, it was to really, to to really. I think what you're referring to is when I was talking about um, the lack of equity and in, in, in the inequality in the industry and the lack of representation of us, right? But my my solution based formulas are more concentrating on us, not actually even considering the gatekeepers at this point anymore. Because I think when we think about inclusion, you know, nothing's changed. You know, it's changed, but nothing's changed at the same time. And it hasn't changed fast enough. And the way it's moving forward in the pace is way too slow for me to wait when we have an opportunity at this point while the world is trending blackness to put our foot on the gas pedal and to make our own changes so you know and that changes lateral cooperation creates vertical movement so this us all next to each other goes like this fast you know as a people here in the united states we spend so much money every year it's ridiculous how much money we spend we're the biggest consumers and we put a real dent in every industry but you know if you look at the top executives making those decisions in those companies they don't look like us you know we might have yeah. some you to- might have some tokenism but even in that is it's laughable you know Um, so I say color up your, your boards to start in your industries at the top, color it up and put some women in there. Cause you know, we have double oppression here, gender and race going on. You know, we talk about racism, but we need to talk about sexism too, because that's huge here, you know? Um, and so we need to see more women. We need to see more colors um, and I represent, I'm lexicon, so I'm talking everything, you know, we need to just see more diversity because that's what people are. They're more than just one dimensional. There's so many of us brilliant out here, you know? So I like to see that uh, in corporate America, but outside of it, as, as us being fashion designers, I would like for us to start writing our own rules and creating our own game plan and our own blueprint and I would like it to look differently and I would not look for them to say okay here's how we do it no let's create our own and then say this is how we're doing it and this is how you can get down if you want to but we control our playbook because that's where the strength comes from and that strength comes from the economy right that's the only thing that drives the driving force in this country at least and so you know, that's globally. So if you, if you go right at the ax and say, well, we're going to start spending with our own and we'll spend 10 cents out of every dollar in our own community, then we could employ every man, woman, and child. Now, imagine that, that's 10%. That number is astounding to me. You know, you look at other industry, uh, other cultures, like um, the Jewish community, the Asian community, you know, white people, their dollars last any anyway We're from like 10 days to 30 days and ours lasts for six hours in our own community. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. that's sobering. We have a lot of work to do. I think when we change that, everything else changes. But it's educating people on consumerism so they understand what a Black entrepreneur is up against in terms of being a small business. Why we have to charge more. Why we need more training. Why Predatory lending wasn't only with um residential properties, it was with small business too. You know, so understanding the challenges that it has coming with a skin color or a certain, you know, name.
0: hmm hmm Wealth. And how
1: you. we get past that. You know, so we we if we support each other, that's the beginning of change. Yeah. On, on every
0: yeah. Well, say this is what we need to do: supporting and really investing in our own communities. Because this is also what I see is a lack over here. Because there is still this this fear, yeah. That
1: white is right, you know. And, and then you know what? And their ice is colder, and it's not. We are the creators and the kings and queens of everything, and we we this 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 human humanity is because of the original black
0: man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and therefore it's time, it's time that we really benefit and we reclaim the narrative. This is also what I say, you know, it's time that we tell our stories. There's so many untold stories. And, um, I know also about the documentary, the remix. And, um, unfortunately over here, we can't see it. We can't stream it yet. But I'm just, oh, I just saw the trailer and it's amazing and um, incredible. I'm, I'm just looking forward to finally look, watch it, you know. I can't wait to get it over there too. You know, we have a lot to talk. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because we, we need this. And um, it is so incredible. And, and all these ladies who have been there behind the scene and we haven't heard of them. And, you know, these are untold stories. And this is what we need because this will shape the next generation and they will have a better way to move on and to, you know, do their thing. And know
1: and, and it can be done bigger and better now. So, you know, we're, we're, we're rooting for this next generation to do that.
0: Absolutely. You know, and the fact now that also the diaspora in Africa, you know, we're growing together. You know, there's a link. We can communicate now direct and can just come up with ideas and we have access. We can travel and, you know, make it happen. And this is what I love about this era. And I mean, look at us now, I'm here in Hamburg, you are in New York. Right. And, you know, communicating, thinking of, you know, different Absolutely. collaborations and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the future. Um, but another thing I wanted just to tickle down is your, um, book. You wrote a book, um, walker jeans walker gems, get your ass off the couch yes exactly wow if you could just give us a little information it's, about it's it. almost like an expansion of
1: this conversation it in essence it is talking about our passion pursuit and really having the gumption the grit and the guts to go after what you want and and sharing my experience and the road less traveled, but doing it just through sharing my story, but also equipping whoever is the reader is with tools, with uh, worksheets, with apps, and things they can use to help automate themselves, their lives, or their dreams, and, and push forward. So that's what it is. It's it's almost like the first book of, as I
0: see a series coming nice so for people out there make sure you get it grab it it's something to have a must have walker james get your ass off the couch
1: and it's on amazon it's also um at walkaware.com so you know either place
0: yeah and actually is it where can we actually buy your brand here in europe on you can you can actually buy it online
1: at walkaware.com we're only online but we do sell to germany in the uk and stuff so
0: cool okay good i can't wait yeah and also to see collaborations with different brands you know yeah we are almost coming to an end But what we always do on the Fashion Africa Now podcast, we have two key questions. The first key question is, what does fashion mean to you?
1: Fashion is art. It's a form of expression, self-expression. Yeah, I would definitely say it's art, it's self-expressive, and it's a
0: uniform to tell people the way you feel that day or the way you feel about yourself. All right. And the second question is, how do you define your role in this movement? With movement, I mean, you know, the current right. fashion movement.
1: I don't define my role. I'm very fluid and agile. And I'm more about trusting my truth and proclaiming that. And in that, I find my role. If that makes sense,
0: yeah, it does. This is you. Thank you. Wonderful. You're welcome. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Absolutely. I mean, you took your time to to be here.
1: Thank you for facilitating this conversation. It's
0: been lovely. Thank you very much. You know, I wish we could speak longer, but I know you're busy and you have your time schedule. I think we need to tune in for another session to keep up the conversation. Right. But it's just um, incredible. And um, for me, I'm so happy and I can imagine you people out there, it's also inspiring for you. And um, yeah, because you're an, an icon and really uh, a sister to look up to and you, you paved the way. And um, it's it, we need to hear these stories. We need to to hear you and uh, we need to have you actually here in Germany, <laughs> if I think of it. Once we get through this pandemic.
1: <laughs> yes. That would be fine. Cool. Cool. Okay.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day.
0: You're listening to Fashion Africana podcast. We humbly ask you to respect our intellectual property. We want to leave you inspired, informed, educated, connected. This is who we are. Fashion Africa Now podcast. Get in touch with us on fashionafricanow.com.